0: 2 Kings chapter 8. And chapter 7 was the continuation of the story about the famine from chapter 6 and how God provided for Israel and the the man who doubted God was trampled at the gate. I was going to say, is that the one with the, yeah. where he said it would be like a shekel the next day? It was uh, one of the lords of Israel. And uh, he didn't believe when uh, Elisha said that God was going to provide for Israel that quickly. And uh, he said, well, they're going to and you're going to see it, but you won't be able to partake of it because you'll be dead too quick. Uh-huh. Sure enough, there was such a rush for the Syrian camp and for people to provide for their families and not starve to death, that the man was literally trampled as people were trying to get into the Syrian camp to get their food. And so it uh, that's how it ended. Verse 20 of chapter 7 says, and he died. And that's the last, uh, last bit of that. But in 2 Kings 8, there is quite a shift in our story. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is Friends Old and New. Friends Old and New. And our first point this morning is, the restoring, is restoring the Shunammite woman. Restoring the Shunammite woman. We remember the Shunammite woman from a few lessons ago. As Elisha was coming into town, she, you know, invited him to her home for him to stay and fed him and took care of him and made uh, friends with her family and so forth. And she was blessed with a child. As a result, the child died. She went and found Elisha at Mount Carmel, came back with the Shunammite woman and restored her son back to life. Yes, I remember that. Right. It's the same woman, that Shunammite woman uh, we see in our first bit of chapter 8 this morning. It says in verse 1, Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou in thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. And the woman arose, and did after the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the end, or at the seven years end, that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines. And she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, so the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. So we see restoring the Shunammite woman. In verse one, we see uh, it says that she's instructed to sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. God is capable of punishing those that need to be punished without collateral damage. Uh, right? So he can punish the sin of one person without harming the righteous person next to them. Right? As my mother used to tell me growing up, God's got very good aim. Uh, this is what we see here. There's a famine about to take place in the land. But this this... Shunammite woman is one of the few righteous people left in the land, and God sends her a special message and says, you and your family go to the land of the Philistines and hide out there and survive until this famine is over. And we see all throughout Scripture many times where God is able to punish the wicked without harming the righteous. Uh, In Genesis 41, we see that uh, that uh, Joseph was used by Pharaoh to store up seed so that his people wouldn't starve to death. And Joseph had gone through all these things, but he'd gone through all these things so that he could stand before Pharaoh and become second in command over Egypt to save all of these people's lives says in Genesis 41 in verse 55, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said unto all the Egyptians, go unto Joseph, what he saith to you do. And the famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold unto the Egyptians. And the famine waxed sore in the land of Egypt. And all countries came into uh, Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn, because the famine was so sore in the land. So we see God's got good aim, right? We also see in the book of Ruth, this exact same scenario happens in the book of Ruth. It says in chapter one, verse one, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So literally the exact same situation. And then we also see um, the story where uh, Israel was sinning against the Lord, right? And there were some mingled in with those that were worshiping false gods, with those that worshiped the one true God. And in Numbers chapter 16, we see that the earth literally opened up and swallowed those that worshiped the false gods. It says, it came to pass in verse 31 of number 16, as he made an end of speaking all these words that the ground clave asunder that was under them and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that uh, that appertained unto Korah and all their goods, they and all that uh, appertained unto them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. And so, again, God's got good aim. It's the same God we serve today. He is able to punish the wicked without harming the righteous in the process. So, that's what he's done. He's told the Shunammite woman to go sojourn in the land of the Philistines. And it might seem like this is something she shouldn't be doing, right? That's what they said about David when he did it too, right? He was running for his life and eventually he chose to live in an exiled city of the Philistines. Does anybody remember the name of that city that David lived out of, ministered out of for years and years and years? Pretty sure I got this Ramon Kahoot also. You got a Ramon Kahoot also? Was he was it what? No. Is there a Z? Uh, you can look it up. I'll let you work on that. But well, we know David did the same thing the Shunammite woman did. And the idea would be Israel's the promised land, right? You shouldn't be leaving the promised land to go live amongst the Philistines. They're idol worshippers, they're heathens, they murder Israelites. Surely it's not right to live amongst people like that. Ziklag. Ziklag, yep. Ziklag. And yet that was the Lord's will. When I went to go start Faith Baptist Church, as you've heard me say before, uh, I was told by our sending church that uh, the pastor decided... That I shouldn't be starting a church because he's never heard of a man who's left three whole churches before and decided that that wasn't the Lord's will for me. Let me explain something to you guys. And if need be, you can clip this moment of me saying this and play it back to me as many times as necessary. Me being your pastor doesn't mean I have a relation, you have a relationship with God through me. You have your own relationship with God completely separate from me when I stand up here and I teach and I preach the Word of God it may so be that you're inspired by something I said whether directly or indirectly talking about the thing you're going through and that God speaks to you through me but that does not mean that I get to decide what God's will is for you that's between you and the Lord just because I'm your pastor doesn't mean I'm your God And this man decided that it wasn't God's will for me to do such a thing. So, he wasn't gonna support us. I've heard of other pastors saying, well, I don't believe a person should be in this situation or that situation, but not have scripture to back themselves up. In other words, it's not what the Bible says, it's not what God said, that's just what they believe. But just like this Shunammite woman, sometimes it is. Sometimes God calls us to live amongst the Philistines for a while. Sometimes God calls us to be a strong Christian despite our circumstances and not because of it. And it's not my place or anybody else's place to decide what God's will is for one person or another. We just finished a whole series in Corinthians about uh, judging people and about unity and togetherness and how this whole thing of I've decided what God wants you to do and doesn't want you to do, it divides us. Now, if somebody's sinning against the Bible, that's different. You know, it's clearly God's will that we not murder people. That's a good thing to not do, is murder people. Don't kill nobody, right? It's a good thing to not steal, right? Don't go robbing any banks on your way home from church today. That's a good thing to do. But when it comes to, I'm supposed to go to this church or that church, I'm supposed to take this job or that job, that's between you and the Lord. And it's not our place to judge such things. We ought to just accept that that person is doing what they believe in their heart, the Lord wants them to do. That's the best all of us, any of us can do. The Lord literally called this Shunammite woman to leave the promised land, to live in the land of the Philistines. And as backwards as that may sound to some people, that was God's will for her. Sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. And then it says in verse two, she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. Right, and like we talked about David before her, And this woman was forced to live amongst ungodly people, right? That's part of the problem with the land of the Philistines, right? Is it's ungodly people that live there. But just because she lived among these ungodly people doesn't mean she had to live like these ungodly people, right? Just because you work at a place where nobody else is a Christian except for you doesn't mean you have to live like those people. Just because your co-workers go out and uh, grab drinks after work doesn't mean that you need to go out and drinking with them. Uh, Just because your co-workers are all talking about this ungodly show that they're watching doesn't mean you need to watch it as well. You can live amongst the Philistines, but you shouldn't live like them. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. We should be separated people. We should be living clean, holy lives not as snobs with our nose stuck in the air, but we should be clean, pure Christian people. Be sober-minded, the Bible says. And then it says in verse 3 that she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. Now, let me ask you guys a question. Why would she need to do that? Because somebody else took it. Because she came home to find someone else living in her house. Can you imagine? Evidently, while the Shunammite woman was away, her house and her land had new residents. Imagine coming home from vacation and finding strangers living in your house. Some of us relate more than others. The Bible says in Luke 13, verse 34, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Verse 35, he says, Behold, your house is is left unto you desolate. Verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. What happened was Israel had been rejecting God's will for them. Jesus came, he proved himself to be the Christ. He went around gathering followers and yet Israel as a whole, as a system, rejected the Messiah. They rejected Christ. And so he's talking about here when Christ is asked to leave the spiritual house, that the house is left desolate. It's left empty, barren, as though a thief came through and stole everything, just took it all away. When we live without the the conscious presence of Christ in our lives. We live without the Lord in our day-to-day life. We live in a desolate house. When we choose to not allow the Lord into our everyday life, what happens is our spiritual house takes up new residents. And they come in and they take over. but what can we do what did the Shunammite woman do she went to the king and she pleaded with the king for her land back and that's what we can do we can return to the king of kings we can plead with the Lord to live day to day with us and restore our home from its desolation. what did the king do? He restored all that was hers. Everything, the land, the house, the possessions within the house, he restored all that was hers. This woman received the blessing because of her kindness to Elisha all those years ago. Not only was she able to avoid the tragedies of the famine, And examples of such tragedies we saw a couple weeks ago when the woman went to the king and complained because she boiled and ate her son, but her neighbor wouldn't boil and eat her son. Such terrible atrocities as that. This is what the Shunammite woman was able to avoid because of the blessings of her kindness to Elisha. And then as she returned she had all of her stuff restored, again, because of her kindness toward Elisha. Because the king heard of what Elisha did for her son and did for her because of what she did for Elisha first, then she was able to have all of her things restored. All of these blessings, you'll notice, they all followed one event in time. She chose to show kindness to Elisha. And all of these blessings followed her for years and years to come. You have no idea the impact a single act of kindness can have. We imagine all the major changes we could make to our present if we could go back in time and change one little thing in our past, right? You think, man, if I had a time machine and I chose not to make that one little decision, I made one little change, it would change my whole life to my present. Right? That's what we believe. And yet, we never consider that we might greatly change our future by one little thing in our present. We never consider, if I just choose to do the right thing this one time, it might completely change the trajectory of my future. We see that to be true with the Shunammite woman. She does one act of kindness for Elisha, and she's blessed for years after as a result. The blessing of the Shunammite woman, the restoring of her land. But then we see a shift in the story. Right, it becomes less about the warnings, or the uh, not warnings, but the uh, opportunities of the blessings of our kindness, and it changes to the warnings of the great evil that we're capable of. And we see number two is a revealing of the evil to come. In verse seven of chapter eight, it says, "Elisha came to Damascus." And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick, and it was told him, saying, the man of God has come hither. And the king said unto Haziel, take a present in thy hand, and go and meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, shall I recover of this disease? So Haziel went to meet him, and took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, forty camels burden, and came and stood before him, and said, thy son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, hath sent me to thee, saying, shall I recover of this disease? And Elisha said unto him, go and say unto him, thou mayest certainly recover, howbeit the Lord hath showed me that he shall surely die. Excuse me, and he settled, verse 11, his countenance steadfastly, until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why weepest, my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire. Their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and wilt dash their children, and rip up their women with children. And Haziel said, but what is thy servant, a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, the Lord hath showed me that thou shall be king over Syria. So he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, what said Elisha to thee? And he answered, he told me that thou shouldest surely recover. And it came to pass on the morrow that he took a thick cloth and dipped in water and spread it over his face, so that he died. And Haziel reigned in his stead. Revealing the evil to come. But before we get to the the end of the story, we have to start at the beginning. Verse seven, we find out that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. Does anybody remember Ben-Hadad from any other stories? The king of Syria. Sounds familiar. Was it... It was probably during all that. Uh, he led a siege against Ahab. Yeah, I knew it was going to be David to Solomon to that stuff. Uh... From his battle against Ahab to his siege of Samaria, Ben-Hadad has been a plague upon Israel for a very long time now. And by the way, being an enemy of God's people is bad for anyone's health. It just is. Uh, there is a Abrahamic covenant where God says, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse at thee. Right, And so it says all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by thee. There is a reason that we should be allies with Israel above all else. But beyond that, not just Israel is God's people. If you're saved, you're part of God's people today. And God protects his own people. And especially the man of God. We should be cautious and respectful toward the man of God. Because God has a way of punishing those that go against His man. Now, that's not popular today. And I'll tell you why it's not popular. It's because the man of God has acted very disrespectfully toward the, the rest of the planet. You turn on the news, you see some man of God being arrested for inappropriate actions with minors, right? Uh, pictures of minors on their computers, so forth. You see it almost every week, another one being arrested for it, and people have lost their faith in preachers. You go to a church, and especially if it's a fundamental Baptist church, what you're going to see everywhere is a list of rules. You ever heard of uh, most fundamental Baptist preachers, when they preach the Bible, they're preaching it like it's a list of rights and wrongs. You're not supposed to do this, and you're not supposed to do that, and you're not supposed to do this, and you're not supposed to do that, and the Bible is so much more than that. It's a journey, right? It's a, it's a spiritual map for your journey of faith, right? It's so much more. It's a living book. It's, it's so much more than just a list of sins you're not supposed to do. And because of their attitude, because of their greed, because of their business ideology, people have lost their faith in preachers. I've heard, because I'm too young to remember, a day in time of preachers like Billy Graham and his crusades. Billy Sunday, Dr. Norris, men who were respectable. You might not agree with them, but you could respect them. You can't respect preachers today. They're so hateful. They're so full of anger and hate, wishing death upon people who disagree with them and claiming it's in the name of the Lord. Violence is never in the name of the Lord. What did Jesus say? Love your enemy. Love your neighbor. Right? Bless them that curse you. Love them that hate you. That's the Lord's way. So, being an enemy of God's people is bad for anyone's health, but God's people make a lot of enemies today. David said in 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-three, "'God is my strength and power, "'and he maketh my way perfect.'" Can you think of a better soldier, a better warrior in all of history than David? Some 12, 13-year-old kid coming up with a slingshot that's able to take down a giant with a sword and a shield. That's a pretty mighty warrior there, right? The king, it's almost like I imagine like a Tom and Jerry cartoon, you know, where the king tells David to go into battle and get a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he's killed, you know, by himself into battle. Surely he dies, right? Well, no, he comes back with a disgusting bag full of a hundred foreskins. Imagine handing that to the king and being like, I don't know why you want these. I don't know. I don't want to know why you want these, but here you go. And, you know, Saul going, "He survived. Because there's no mightier warrior in all the world than David. Why was that? That was because God was his power. When the rest of the Israelite army was hiding under their tents like little like little Girl Scouts away from this giant Philistine, David was telling them, is there not a cause? Is there not a reason to stand up and fight? He's cursing your God to your face. And that's the reason he went down. And he stood against Goliath to his face and said, you defy the armies of the living God, and that is why you're about to die, and I'm going to feed your carcass to the birds of the air. And he did Except for the head. He took the head as a trophy to Jerusalem. But David here, a mighty man like David, said, God is my strength and power. God was the reason he was so mighty. Because God takes care of his own. It says in verse 8, The king said unto Haziel, Take a present in thine hand and go. Isn't it ironic? He sent Haziel to Elisha. Because Ben-Hadad literally sent his messenger of death to greet Elisha. We should be cautious who we ask to stand by our side. The Bible says in Matthew chapter seven, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves you shall know them by their fruits. Now, when you hear, hear this preached many times in the past, they'll say, "Fruit is you know, apple trees produce apples, pear trees produce pears. Christians, they produce Christians, right? So, if you's gonna be a good Christian, you're gonna bring lots of people to the church, and they're gonna bring their checkbooks and tithe. That's not obvious." No, that's not the fruit he's talking about here. You'll know them by their fruit. You know them by their works. You know them by what they do. Because a wolf in sheep's clothing can be very good with words. They're slick. They're smooth. They've got you talked over. And everything they do that doesn't track, they can talk their way out of it. You've got to be careful about those wolves in sheep's clothing. You know them by their fruit. Their fruit is their works, the things that they do. If they're not good, they're not producing good things, then they're not a sheep, they're a wolf. There's a lot of wolves in sheep's clothing out there. They're very good at tricking you into doing something you shouldn't do. You should be cautious of it. He says, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Notice it didn't say it doesn't produce fruit at all. It said it produces evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot, not does not, not will not, cannot produce evil fruit. A good person cannot bring themselves to do something evil. You know a good person because they say, I, I just can't do that to them. I'm sure they deserve it, but I just can't do that to them. That's a good person. You need to be cautious of those people that have absolutely no problem cheating somebody and running off. Somebody who says something like, well, that's what they deserve anyways. Don't trust somebody like that. Like that viral video going around of that preacher who said, well, those those." You know, homosexuals who died in the parade, they deserve death anyways because they're sinners. Guess what, Bubba? Lean in real close so you can hear this. We're all sinners. You deserve the same death they do. Just because you got saved doesn't make you any better than them. We're all sinners. We all deserve death. But that's not what God wants. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish. That kind of puts your ideology to death right there, doesn't it? but that all should come to repentance. That's God's will. A, cr- a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. You'll know them by the fruits. Be careful who you ask to stand by your side. Make sure it's not Ahazio. Verse 9 says, Thy son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, hath sent me to thee. So now, at the end of his life, Ben-Hadad desires to be a son, right? He wasn't too concerned with being a son of the Lord when he was trying to kill Ahab, right? He wasn't too concerned with being a son of God when he was sieging Samaria, right? But now, all of a sudden, toward the end of his life, now he wants to be, oh, thy son Ben-Hadad, thy faithful friend who he's never been. He's waited too late to receive the Lord because he's gonna die before he gets any true message back from the Lord, right? He wants to know how to be a son, and by the time his messenger gets back, his messenger's gonna lie to him and then kill him. And that's the end of his life. It's too late for him, not because it's toward the end of his life, but it's too late for him but because he doesn't have much time left and can't receive the good message of the Lord. That's why it's too late for him. The, book, uh, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 14 the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceive also that one event happeneth to them all. Right? In other words, a wise man can see everything. I see what you're actually saying right? It's what a wise man can do. I can see what's about to happen. It's what a wise man can do. A fool walks around blindly having no idea what's actually happening around him because he doesn't perceive. But here Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, one event happens to both of them. It happens to the wise man just like it does the, fool, the foolish man, <coughs> And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. Right? There is nothing more frustrating and difficult than to know that something terrible is about to happen and that there is nothing you can do about it. Because he says in verse 12, I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Elisha knew what was about to happen. He knew all the terrible events. And he also knew there was nothing he could do about it. That is the most frustrating thing of all. To see someone making a mistake you know is going to cost them. You know how it's going to cost them. You can tell them play by play what's going to take place. They don't believe you. They do it anyways. And it all unfolds exactly like you said. And the people who have that happen to them, you don't believe that person and those things happen exactly like they say, you think they're happy about it. You think they're over there gloating, you think they can't wait to see you again so they can say, I told you so, and that's not how they feel. I can tell you from firsthand experience, it is the single most frustrating thing you will ever experience, is to tell somebody exactly what not to do and what'll happen if they they do, and they do it anyways. I'm not happy when that happens. I'm not glad somebody gets uh, in trouble or hurt or something like that. It it hurts me. It's annoying. It's frustrating. It's terrible. If somebody, if you're blessed enough, if you're lucky enough to have somebody in your life that will warn you about these things ahead of time, learn to listen to them. Because it might just be that God is trying to speak to you through that person. And then we see verses 13 through 15, the rest of the story, and his response to the evil that Elisha just said, you're going to, you know, butcher children. You're going to murder pregnant women. And his response is, what is thy servant, a dog that he should do this great thing? That is his response. Basil was less concerned with why he would do such a terrible thing as much as he was how he could do such a terrible thing. What's the difference? Well, the difference is morally, how could I ever bring myself to do such an awful, horrible, disgusting thing? And then the other one is, really, I'm going to be strong enough to do that one day? Wow. That's pretty cool for me. A love and infatuation with wealth and power will always lead to great evil. You learn to love money and you learn to love power. It will always lead to greater evil. If you develop that that craving for more and more and more, I need more money. I need more money. I need more money. I need more power. I need more power. Someone who's, who's lost power because that's how our government works, and they're continuously trying to cling back to the power they once had. That leads to great evil. There's a reason our forefathers had the, the foresight to say, only so many years as a president. Why? Because power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts Absolutely. And they knew that. They didn't want a king. We just got rid of that awful system. And we're going to divide it up because they knew, like it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verse 8, it says, Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts. You ever notice that people that want more money, more power, more wealth, more this, more that, they're never happy, are they? Those people aren't happy. you would say, man, if I had what they had, I'd be so happy. And maybe you would, but they're not, and they're not because they're not satisfied. It's a nice car. It's not nice enough. They came out with a newer model. I don't have it, so now I'm miserable. It's a nice house. My friend's got a nicer house. I've got an in-ground pool. He's got an in-ground pool with a jacuzzi. Now miserable. It's never enough, never happy, never satisfied, always needing more. Many hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. There are people around us today drowning in their own destruction, they're drowning in their own foolishness. Because they never found contentment. Because verse 10 follows, it's the very next verse after what we just read. In 2 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, says, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Love the Lord, don't love money. But verse 8 is where we should live. right? Verse 8 is our bread and butter. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. You will find happiness with contentment. If you can get to the point where you say, you know what, I've got some good clothes on my back, I've got some good food in the cupboard, I'm happy. If you can be content with that, you will be happier than every billionaire on the planet. They're miserable. They never have enough, they're never satisfied. But the person who finds contentment with food and raiment, the basic necessities of life, they're happy. They're incredibly content. And that's the key to true happiness. That's the key to spiritual prosperity. It's learning contentment in your present situation. Whatever you have right now, learn to be happy with it. Learn to be okay with what you have and not be miserable for the things you don't have. And that's the key to real happiness. And in closing, I just want to remind you of this. Baloo had it right. You guys, look for the bare necessities of life.